Oh my days. Welcome back to Tom's Takes. This is me, Tom Patterson. This is episode five of this podcast. Uh, wherever you are right now, whatever time it is for you, I hope you're having a great day. Uh, first of all, just a shout out to everyone that's reached out to me on uh, Instagram at TomPatterson97 with your suggestions and your feedback and your questions. Uh, I really appreciate it. Thanks for showing me so much love. Um, yeah, keep them coming. Yeah, if you have any further suggestions or lots of questions on particular sport, it's been great to hear about what teams you guys are going for and what do you think will be happening and even some people like messaging me their hockey teams and stuff, which has been great to see. So uh, we'll see how that goes. But um, yeah, Tom Patterson 97 on Instagram with your questions or suggestions and feedback. Um, thanks again. Let's get into it. Man, first of all, it has been a bit of a crazy week, a bit of a scuffed week for me. Uh, so first off, uh, I think, well, I'm trying to watch a lot of NBA, more than I usually would, but like I would usually watch a lot, but then now st- starting this podcast, I really want to be informed about what's everything, you know, informed about everything that's going on and just know what I'm talking about. So it, it helps more so when I watch the games in their entirety or as, as much as I can rather than just watching the highlights or just pulling up the score to it so I can really talk about it in depth um but doing that I'm you know I'm still a student not a not a millionaire millionaire yet or don't have uh not fully loaded still you know living at home it's a bit of a you know I've got I've got funds, but it's a, it's a bit of a struggle street. So what I'm trying to say is I do something bad to watch sports, not the NFL. I've paid for, I'm giving the NFL my money in the, in the game pass, like NFL red zone on a Monday morning, Scott Hansis, man, he's like a father to me. That guy, he is, (laughs) that's my favorite day of the week when the NFL comes around. So I have to have NFL red zone and I don't want that messed around with. I'm, I'm willing to pay for that, but all the other sports, I do something bad. And this is, you know, no one shared this with the police or anything, <laughs> but I, I stream all the other sports that I watch. Um, so I don't, you know, I don't have Hulu or like, you know, back in the day, you know, Foxtel doesn't really exist anymore, but don't have Foxtel, like don't pay for a service to watch most of the things that I watch. It's just going on, on the online and on the web, on the line. <laughs> it's such a boomer. Um, and trying to find a source to watch this. So then this week, I think I went to a dodgy site and my, my credit card info somehow has been taken because I woke up in the middle of the night Commonwealth like sent me a, a message on the app being like, this transaction, it was this you? And it was like a $200 uh, vet fee that, um, from this pet store or vet in uh, Portland, Oregon in the U.S., so I was like, oh, that def- I'm not in the US right now. And damn, I'm sorry. I don't know. I'm sorry for whoever this animal needs taken care of. But um, yeah, so had to like lock my credit card, replace it. So like that screws things around a little bit. Uh, that's been interesting, I guess. I know, good system, I guess, with, with the banks nowadays and technology that people can't just take your card and start swiping away on everything and you wouldn't know about it till 
a month later or three, six months later and be like, oh, damn, I have no savings anymore. Um, so it's good I can catch it at the first bit, but it's like, oh, the hassle of like getting a new credit card. And I don't know if people are like me. I think a lot of people aren't, but I can like, I remember a lot of like the, my, the numbers, like card numbers and bank account details so well. So it's like, oh, I need to memorize a new card number so that like, I don't always have to get my card out. I can just know what the, the big number is and the expiry date and all that. So Oh, not looking forward to that. You know, it happens though. We move, we'll retrieve the funds eventually. Uh, sorry to whoever's dog or cat or whatever animal. Hopefully I didn't, um, I don't know. Hopefully you found a way of, of getting the, the funds to the vet or getting your dog food. Okay. But, uh, use your own credit card next time. <laughs> or maybe it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a sign to me. It's like, go and go and sign up for more streaming services. Um, Shout out Pav because she's the one that, that hooks me up to like all the Netflix and Disney Plus and Stan. But it's crazy, man. Like I don't even pay it, but I'm gonna complain about it anyway. But it's like, how can you sign up to you're gonna need like ten different subscriptions to watch everything that you want? Um, you know, with your entertainment plus sports. That's like I don't know boatloads of money per month just to watch all this stuff. I think it's going to end up coming around in a few years where, you know, that's how Foxtel started, right? Like Foxtel's idea was like, why have all, you know, these different streaming platforms where we can just be the one center, what like the one source for everybody. And you can sign up to different packages of what you need. I think that even though Fox, you know, Netflix and Stan have kind of killed off Foxtel. I feel like in the next five, 10 years, who knows, maybe Amazon or Google will buy out all these Netflix and stuff and put them all together. Cause I think people are starting to get sick of, damn, do I really have to have like six, seven, eight subscriptions that I pay per month to watch what I need to watch? So yeah, maybe it, can I hold out to those days or is it a sign for me to just stop illegally watching things, Tom? <laughs> Uh, I can hear Pav's voice in my head right now. Just pay for pay for MBA. Uh, we'll see. Man, um, I've been a bit of a yes man this whole semester at uni with the teaching. You know, I'm whispered in a lot of people's ears last year, and you know, put my name out there, and really uh, just got the foot in the door when. And you know, I'm very proud of it. Like I'm 25 years old. No one else is doing this. First person to get in this young and this is what I want to do. This is what I want to uh, keep doing and build the sort of teaching career and academic sort of stuff. So I really enjoy it and it's great to get like the first sort of one, two feet in the door, but now i got to keep, uh, that's why I'm trying to be the yes man at the moment. Like any sort of covering, like a casual like just covering any shift, anybody that gets sick, gets COVID or has something on. It's like, okay, we need someone to teach this class. Um, you know, can you do it, Tom? Yes, easily. Let me like keep meeting people, keep getting in front of people, showing them that I can do it well. Um, and that's going to bode well for the future. So it's been interesting this year. Like I started off just teaching with like my, my regular teaching is just, uh, like first year, master's students, master's physio students. 
But then with me being the yes man uh, through the last eight weeks, like this first semester, um, I've got to cover across all the different years of physio, like the undergraduate course, which is a four-year course. I've taught the first year, second years, third years, fourth years. And then this week was like completing the, the bucket list for me or completing the the bingo box I can yell bingo this week because I'm teaching um, the second year master's students. So they're one of two years in that course. So I've seen the whole cohorts on both sides, undergraduate and master's, and just been really interesting to see, you know, what, first of all, just being on the other side of it, you know, you go through uni as a student and, you know, you kind of just see things from the student perspective about, oh, like, what they're teaching is baloney. This could be so much better. And it's funny because I still have a lot of those thoughts. It's like, oh, I can't wait till I, you know, move higher up and have a big, you know, I do have a voice and I'm starting to impact the course and about how we try to uh, teach things. But there'll be a time in the future, in the next one or two years, where I step up to be more coordinating these courses. And I'm really excited to put my own touch on these, you know, courses and make things better, make things, you know, more real life-based, more practical. Um, So it's been interesting in that point of view. But then also seeing, you know, comparing undergraduates to master's students, like in terms of maturity, you may think that like, oh, undergraduates being fresh out of high school, like less mature, and master's kids, you know, have already done a degree, so they really want to be there. Um, still a bit of a mix, though. You still get those real high achievers and kids in undergraduate degrees who are really suited to doing these, like, health, um, being in the health industry and love it, can talk to people, whereas you do see those stereotypes of the really smart kids that just do well on theory tests, but, you know, you put them in front of a patient, put them in front of a person and they can't talk to them. Um, you know, they, you can, they can tell you every funky spot on the bone, but trying to explain, you know, how someone tore a hamstring and what their plan is for rehab and getting them back to sport. That's a different level. Um, but even with the master's students, though, I was surprised that, I was thinking, oh, they're all going to be like super motivated and you know easy to engage. They really want to be here, but you still get those ones that are you know like the class clowns or are difficult to engage, don't listen, have lots of things going on at home or outside of uni. Um, so it's been interesting to see that. Also, I think, especially seeing not really the first year. Um, students with undergrad but maybe the all the other years so like second years third year fourth year undergrads and second year masters you can really see how much like COVID affected uh like practical learning and even just students engagement I think I think having those last two years on zoom primarily and only really getting them in for practical assessments where they barely got taught the practical techniques. Like in physio, I don't like it, and I've talked about it before, that a lot of it is focused on massage and, you know, manipulations or manual therapy, like putting your putting our hands on someone's joint or someone's body and trying to do something 
therapeutic. I'm doing therapeutic in brackets as well, by the way. <laughs> um, and there's such a big focus on that, but then trying to do that online, like not in person, you can't help the, the students position their hands in the right place or really, I don't know, it comes down to how you learn too. Like if you're trying to do something practical, it's try, it's, you're trying to learn a new skill, is it effective for you to just watch someone on YouTube do it and then you can master it by that? Or do you, would you want that person on YouTube to come come over to your house or come meet you somewhere and really, you know, give you some physical guidance and make sure you're in the right place and talk you through things in person and you can ask questions, like there's more opportunity to ask questions and get feedback. Um, anyway, I think the, the main thing I'm trying to say is it's, you can see the real effect that not having those practical opportunities and not having a lot of opportunities to ask questions has made students a a bit more dejected and a bit isolated and really struggling and behind. Um, So yeah, it's been a real focus of, of me to try and make sure I'm giving equal time to all the students and really refresh them about, you know, all their anatomy, all the stuff that they did learn during that COVID time and try to give them extra opportunity to get these things right and bring them up to that level that we expect and what they're going to need when they actually get out there. Because it's going to be a bit of a madness, I think, and I would be a bit nervous or a bit scared to have, you know, anyone that's a new graduate just recently this year or the year before, like anyone that, that went through and finished part of their degree in a hands-on uh, course such as, you know, health science or anyway, I won't make too many generalizations. I'll say with physio that I would be nervous having someone like that treat me because I just would feel they didn't really get um, the optimal time, the, the right ways to practice, um, proper supervision, um, a lot of things are still going to be new to them. A lot of things they're still going to try first time. And I know some people, you know, you learn so much on the job already, but it was like that before. Like graduates, a lot of graduates have come out not ready, but, oh, I've had a bit of a taste. I have the general idea. I feel like these guys are coming out going even less than that. Like, wow, I'm really confused. Or like, I've literally never seen this and I've never heard about it. Um, or I heard about it on a, on a 15 minute part of an hour zoom lecture or zoom call. Um, so that makes me nervous. That makes me go, damn, I would want a more experienced or older professional. But then I think too, sometimes, sometimes those guys, the more experienced and older mugs can be out of touch. Like with what I was saying last episode, where you have that battle with, um, different graduates or people that, you know, I graduated in 1980. So I practiced the way I was taught then. And, you know, I've have 40 years of lived experience of doing that practice as well. And it seems okay for me. So I'm going to do lots of this massage or electrotherapy, or that's just the way I was taught by people when I came out. So I feel like that mindset, uh, transcends itself or gets recycled all the time. Um, so you have to be careful because it's like we're in a tricky spot right now in the world where the graduates coming out do not feel confident 
I'm, I'm making a generalization. Like there's still some real high high performers and people that have taken initiative and found work like I've did before, like when you're coming out, doing a range of different placements or working on your own um, time or dime, that sort of thing. But it's few and far between. So a lot of them are coming out not confident, not skilled enough, and would make me nervous. But then don't just be too comfortable in, oh, this person's like 50, 60 years old. They they really know what they're talking about. I'm going to just trust them wholeheartedly. I think there's a sweet spot probably in um, hopefully people in between that like 25 to, to 30, 35 year range because a, a lot of physio evidence and research, it's still changing, but we're moving more towards really considering people's you know, psychological, emotional, mental well-being, their headspace, and there's like social, um, sociological sort of circumstances and all that, rather than very biomedical focus. And and I like that. I think um, with all the conditions nowadays, we're showing it's not just um, one sort of straight line back to rehab or getting better, and have to be considering uh, every condition basically as like multifactorial. Um, so I like that approach and it'll be interesting to see, yeah, how these, these COVID grads, these COVID kids, um, coming out of uni go. Okay. One last thing. I promise we will get into some sport eventually. It is a sports podcast, but just last funny thing from my week, apart from the, the credit card and me being the yes man at the moment, um, there was a strike today on at Sydney Uni, Sydney Uni main campus where I work at and I knew it was going on and it's a strike about making sure that casual employees, casual staff are like not forgotten about, they have benefits and just a real message to like the top people at the university to yeah, care more and be more inclusive of all different types of staff and, and students as well and that working conditions are safe and um, productive for everybody um, and I support that um, what I didn't realize though was that the strike was going to block all entrances into the uni um, to drive in so I'm not a big public transport type of guy uh, I love my car <laughs> I love driving everywhere so I usually drive to uni and park underground there and so I'm driving this morning and I'm like, okay, I'm going to record the podcast sometime today, do a bit of PhD work and then I'll teach. So busy schedule. And then I try to turn into the university and there's people with megaphones and big signs and there's people, you know, chained onto the gate and everyone's linking arms and there's barricades, there's police officers. And I'm like, whoa, what's going on here? And I'm like, oh, the strike, my days. Ah. Oh. Okay, hopefully this is just at this entrance. I wasn't really, I hadn't clicked in my mind yet. So I just went to my normal entrance to the uni where I'm going to go to the car park. But, you know, there's a few entrances into the uni. Surely they haven't blocked every entrance. And uh, no, no, they have. They really have. So as I go around to each entrance, I'm 
my face is dropping and I'm starting to get more stressed and, you know, I've had a big glass of water in the morning and I've been in the car already like 40, 45 minutes. I'm like, Oh, I'm, I'm busting to go here. My, my bladder saying it's time. Um, I need to get in. I've got a busy day <laughs> guys. It's like, I'm for you. I'm a casual staff as well. I like, you're doing this strike for me. Just let me through, guys. <laughs> the real... But I'll point out any of the top dogs if I see them, okay? I'm with you. But they were they were not about it. They, um... Man, they, they were really vocal today and very, um... They sent a message. It was... I eventually... I guess the good thing about this was I found even more tricky little spots of where I can park just off campus but near enough. But it was walking distance. But again, a bit of a, st- a scuffed day because as soon as I park, it starts pouring raining and I didn't bring my umbrella. So I'm like a wet tuna, a wet tom, just walking into uni, <laughs> very unprofessional. <laughs> like I've just jumped out of the shower and put my wet clothes on. It's, it's madness. Um, but yeah, when, you, when I got onto uni, it's absolutely dead. It's like tumbleweeds rolling back and forth like in the, in the desert Western films. No one's there. Ghost town. Um, anyway, so that's kind of thrown off my day, but I'm glad I'm still able to do this podcast and, um, I found a little, little moment of the day, a little break time. Um, so I've ran back to my car cause I've, I've parked it in a good spot, but it's like two hours free parking. Um, so I'm going to be here more than two hours. So I just came back and ran here and now I've got like an hour break. So be here in case anyone tries to find me. I'm just here so I don't get fined. Marshawn Lynch, shout out the greatest. That was an awesome Super Bowl quote. Those that know, if you know, you know. <laughs> I'm just here so I don't get fined. <laughs> That's me right now sitting in this car recording the podcast. <laughs> um, man. Yeah. Anyway, I support, I support strikes and I'm about the unions and all that, but Man, you're taking down one of your own team here, guys. <laughs> Let me through. Make it easy for me. I think it sucks too because it's like they're not being oh, – like how can you? Like you've you've barricaded the exits and entries and you've handcuffed people everywhere and you've got big signs and you're being super loud and um, there's no place. I was going to say, why wouldn't they just let the students and like casual staff in? Like your fight's not with them but I don't know then you could get some of these top dogs trying to be like, no, I'm just a student or I'm just a casual myself. And then the strike doesn't really work. So I don't know. Shout out for, for organizing it and standing up for what you believe in. But, um, it just sucks that I'm, I'm a casualty today. (laughs) Uh, anyway, that was funny. Alrighty. Let's get into the NBA and the first matchup that's been happening over the last few days, first games I need to catch up on is uh, Memphis Grizzlies in the West playing Golden State Warriors. We had game three and four. So going into game three, that series was tied at one all and then it's gone back to Golden State for game three. And... Apart from the first quarter where Memphis really came out hitting their shots and went on a big sort of run, at one point it was like 22, 24 to 10 in that first quarter and Golden State were down big and you were like, oh damn, Memphis, 
you know, shout out them for coming out really intense and with a lot of energy and trying to take the game to all the Splash Brothers uh, and uh, the Warriors themselves at their home court. Um, that's full on. It's full on to play in that stadium. The energy there, that what those fans expect from having so much championship success over the last five to ten years um they really support and barrack for their team hard so that first quarter i think came out and played exactly how they needed to um but that kind of woke golden state up in that third game and i think this was like the big difference in this series i think for memphis compared to the timberwolves where you know the Timberwolves would go on a run, you know, there was lots of times in that series, Memphis versus Timberwolves in the last, in the opening round, where, you know, Timberwolves would go up by 20, and then Memphis would go up by 20, and then Timberwolves would go up again by 20, and then Memphis would do a crazy comeback and win the game by a couple of points, by coming back from like 22 down. And whilst that's entertaining and awesome for Memphis, that type of stuff is not going to happen with Golden State. Like, what will happen is what happened in this first quarter, right? Like Memphis got up, you know, 12, 14 points, but Golden State just has that championship DNA, that experience in having five of their players on their squad, like five of their 10, 12 guys have been in this situation before and faced adversity, adversity don't panic, um, know how to um, come back and stop momentum and swing it back in their direction. So... That's exactly what Golden State did for the rest of the game. Um, that first quarter kind of woke them up, and Steph Curry, Clay Thompson got going, Jordan Poole got going, Draymond Green being really physical on both boards, like offensive, offensively and defensively. You know, it's such a big um, game changer for you as a team if you can control the boards, control the backboard, and give your team second, third, fourth opportunities to score points. You're not going to make every shot that you take, right? But if you can go and secure the rebound, if you have another player who's not expecting you to miss, but not being reactive, being proactive and going, yep, I think this is going in, but I'm ready for the rebound anyway, or I'm boxing out someone else on their team so some someone else on my team can go get the rebound and then you get a second opportunity for points. Like I just said, like you're not going to hit every shot, but these players, they hit like 50, 60% of their shots. So if the first one doesn't go in, you, I wouldn't bet against the second one not going in as well. So um, that's why it's a huge advantage to control the rebounds, which Golden State have, has done in the first three games of this series and was a real um, sort of catalyst to them winning this game three. And they took it comfortably (laughs) on my days. With ease. (laughs) They took it with ease. (laughs) I can't say comfortably. (laughs) Man, the English (laughs) is so bad. Anyway, it was like 144 to I think 110. Um, And you have no chance of beating Golden State if they score 144 points. That just shows you that they're getting anything that they want. Um, I think the big thing too is that it allowed, in the fourth quarter, they had such a big lead that Steve Kerr smartly, and this is what you know the 76ers and they should have done with Joel Embiid, like they took their star guys out. They're like, Steph, you've already got 30. We don't need you to get any records here. You know, 
Um, I'm sure you'd love to get, and you could easily get 50 tonight, right? But we don't need that from you. We've already got this game in the bag. Um, let's put our young guys on and start getting them, you know, some experience in the playoffs, get them feeling comfortable. Um, they can experience the win. They can experience seeing some of their shots go down, marking some of their top players. That's great experience and such an advantage as you can expose them more and more, especially for the people that don't have that championship experience. Players like um, Anthony Wiggins or Jonathan Kaminga, um, et cetera, et cetera. Lots of those. So like, you know, like I just said at the start, like five of those 12 guys, like Clay Thompson, Draymond Green, Steph Curry, uh, Kevin Looney, Andre Iguodala. Those are the five or six dudes that have that championship pedigree and resume. All the others, it's their first time. Like, don't forget, since KD and Clay both went down in that 2019 finals against the Raptors, Golden State hasn't been back to the playoffs since then. It's kind of weird and shocking to really wrap your mind around because they're such a good team and have such high a high degree of talent on their roster always. But those injuries have really hurt them and it's only just now that they're re- like finally back in the position they were two or three years ago. Um, so I expect a big run from them. Everyone is sort of talking about what happened at the end of Game 3 and it was an incident with Jordan Poole and Ja Morant. So Ja Morant, the Memphis player, has the ball around half court and they're double teaming him, the Golden State Warriors, and trying to get the ball, trying to get a steal, trying to force a turnover and not giving Ja Morant space to pass. They're like reaching in for the ball. He's like, Ja Morant trying to protect it. He goes up high, then he goes down low. He's twisting to each side, trying to like not give up a steal. And Jordan Poole hits the ball out of his hands a little bit and Jarmarek tries to regain it. And then I think he does, and you've probably seen replays of this. And then Jarmarek takes it down lower. Sorry, everybody. I've just had the the uh, like a truck back up next to me <laughs> where I'm recording and there's a man with the freaking leaf blower. So I'm sorry about that in the background. Anyway, back to Jarmarek. They're trying to get the steal. Jordan Poole reaches in, knocks it loose a little bit. Jamran regains it and then reaches in again down lower and trying to snatch the ball, but he accidentally like reaches for his knee and pulls his kneecap sort of outwards. Um, it doesn't. It didn't seem deliberate for me. I have a little bit of a Golden State bias, and I was talking with Pav about it last night, and she was uh, she hadn't seen the video yet, and I was just talking about what happened, and she was saying. Now, Tom, was it was it actually dirty? Or like, you know, you know, you have a a love for this Golden State team. Like, if this happened to a Golden State player, would you say the same thing? And I was thinking about it, going, oh, I think it was still accidental. It's just, you know, it's a shame that it happened. Um, it meant that Ja Morant didn't play the fourth game, and he's not going to play. He's very unlikely to play any of the rest of the series as well, which is, yeah, such a shame and because he's such a big part of their offense and their best player, right? So no one wants to see their star player go down. Um, But it seemed accidental. Like, you can see how it could have caused an injury, but I don't think that it was... 
there was intent from Jordan Poole to, oh, you know, let me try to like dislocate his knee here. Let me try to do harm and grab his leg. It was, oh, you know, I'm going for the ball. These players are dribbling the ball at speed and it can be unpredictable where the ball's going to go next. Trying to reach him for the steal, accidentally missed and grabbed his leg. Um, go and watch it if you haven't watched it. Just type in Jar Morant injury on YouTube. See what you make of it. See if I'm being biased. I think I think it's accidental. I think it's a real shame. It's a shame that it caused the injury. It definitely, from, from a physio hat on, that's the way uh, the knee likes to dislocate, pulling that kneecap out to the side. Um, so it definitely would have hurt and could have... Um, you know, cause the dislocation or make it more likely to, that a dislocation happens in the future, which is a shame. But I don't think it was a, you know, you look back on game two where Gary, Gary Payton the second was in on a wide open layup. The Memphis players chasing him down from behind and just clotheslines him on the head and he ends up ble- breaking his elbow on that play because of the fall. I think it's not fair to compare those two plays in terms of intent and in terms of um, worth being a flagrant foul or a technical foul or not. Um, you know, both players got injured on the same on on that play, but they're very different severities of injuries and severity of the sort of intent for harm. I think. Um, let me know what you think. See if you disagree or if you agree. Watch that play on YouTube. Jar Morant injury. See what you think. Then we move on to game four in that series. So still with Warriors versus Memphis. Memphis lost game three, big blowout loss after starting strong early. Then it's still in Golden State. And this is a massive opportunity for Golden State in game four. They're up 2-1 and they're the lowest seed. So game four is at their house as well again. And it's a massive opportunity to go up 3-1 and only need to win one more of the remaining three if they win this next one. And that's what they did. But it took all of them and they just scraped through. They didn't play pretty. They turned over the ball a lot. Um, you know, Ja Morant didn't play. He had an, that knee injury that I was just talking about. Um, but their Memphis put in a lot of size. They played Steven Adams in this game and he was great for them. Like I talked about how important it is to get rebounds just a second ago. And having taller people, that's why height... And length on basketball teams is so important, right? It's not just for fun. It's not just because we need, we want to like point and laugh at the BFG, right? It's to go and get the ball and give your team more chances at shooting more shots. And eventually more of those shots are going to go in. And if you have the ball more than your opponent, you're likely going to score more than them. So Memphis were able to do that. Finally, they were able to win the rebound battle in this game, but they end up losing the game overall, I think 101 to 98 or 96. So pretty close game. Um, I think that comes down to, yeah, Memphis's size advantage over the Warriors, whereas the Warriors lineup only really has one or two bigs on them, which is Draymond Green and Anthony Wiggins, um, but still they're sort of undersized centers or at the five compared to, you know, a Joel Embiid or um, Nikola Jokic or these Steve Adams type of guys that are just 
six eight, six nine, six ten, seven foot. Um, so they have a way taller, way wider wingspan, and you can just get more second chance points. Um, Steve Kerr wasn't there, the Warriors coach, so the assistant coach had to step up. So Steve Kerr got notified that he had COVID about an hour or two before the game. I think that threw off the Warriors game plan a little bit and made, you know, the assistant coach just, it's hard, right? Like coming in and having to, he would be across the game plan, but Steve Kerr has been the Golden State coach for, you know, over a decade plus now and just knows all the like integral and tiny little minute details and subtle things going on and knowing when to call or play certain lineups, like whether to go taller or go smaller or switch up matchups on defense or offense or to shoot more three points now or to go attack the basketball and get more two points now. And I think those little subtle things um, hurt the Warriors today and can be explained partly by coaching. And then Draymond Green, who's like the heart and soul of the Warriors, um, he shared just before the game to the morning of that he got some uh, really tragic news, like his best friend passed away unexpectedly. Um, so he was in a really bad headspace and you know didn't have to play but suited up anyway, but he was a little bit just less of himself on the court and less physical, less vocal, less intense. And I think, you know, as you should, right? Like that's a lot to go through. Probably had a, a lot on his mind and playing basketball is just not the priority then. Um, you know, credit to him for still suiting up and playing through the whole game and still being productive. Like it wasn't like he was totally lost out there, but he, he just wasn't himself and, and even he admits that. So um, I think he'll just take some time to get through that and start the grieving process and yeah, move forward from there. So yeah, condolences out to that family. Um, but still very, very impressive by Golden State with all that going on, right? And I know Ja Morant was not there, but I would also say the argument, this team missed Ja Morant most, well, not most of the year, but a few times of the year, Ja Morant had similar knee injuries as well. And so he missed time, but this Memphis team still found ways to win without him. I think they won... 90% of their games without Ja Morant on the field as well when he was injured. So it's not like, oh, he's out. We totally have no shot. But that's where the playoffs take the next step in intensity and effort and you're just playing the best of the best teams. In the regular season and your star play gets injured, teams are never playing 100% of their capacity in the regular season. There's just no no real chance to like only Giannis and Russell Westbrook. Yep. I said it, um, play with like a hundred percent effort level. Um, and that's because there's too many games, you know, you play with the NBA. What you need to understand is like their games are scheduled. Basically, did you play today? No. Okay. You're playing tomorrow. And then even if it was, did you play today? Yes. Oh, you're still playing tomorrow. Sometimes like they play 82 games, in the regular season and that's between around October to when to like April end of March 
So it's a lot of games just back to back and it's a lot of wear and tear on your body. Um, so you have to go through these like load management and spending time off the field and yeah, making sure that your body's in the best shape and you can't go full out every game for 80 games and then come back in the playoffs and keep going hard out as well. You have to pace yourself. So anyway, what I'm trying to say is that it's much easier if your star player is injured to get a regular season win. But now you're in the playoffs, everyone's playing at like 200% intensity rather than you know 50 or 60% intensity in the regular season. So I think that's a big factor in the loss tonight too. Um, Golden State took care of business, right? It's now 3-1 and they just need to win one more game. They just need to not let what happened against the Cavs back in 2016 in the finals happen again. Oh no, Golden State, 3-1 up. <laughs> they surely couldn't throw it here. Um, I think that they, yeah, they definitely have learned lessons from that 3-1 loss. And I just don't, I don't see them ever throwing a lead like that again. I think that they're too experienced now. And I think every time that they're 3-1 up in a series since then, they're, you bet Steph Curry and all the rest of those championship players are going, hey, no slacking off here. It's not over. We've done this before. Yeah, you don't want to be part of this if we lose. Uh, we need to make sure and handle business. So I think this series is over now, especially if Ja Moran doesn't come back. I know that Memphis showed and put on a close game, but... Steve Kerr will be back next next game. Draymond Green, I think, will be back to more or more of himself, um, hopefully. And yeah, Golden State is going to come up with a, a game plan against Memphis playing that really tall lineup and try to exploit it um, as well. So that's a real advantage for Golden State because the the other series I'll get to talking about it, but between the Mavs and the Suns out west. You know, with Golden State looking like they're going to go through, and Golden State should be going, let's get this done in five. Let's go back to Memphis. Let's get greedy. Let's steal this win and give ourselves more rest and more recovery and more time to game plan and watch film, self scout, and really be ready for whoever it is. I think it's going to be the Suns, but you just have such an advantage if you get a few more days rest in these playoff periods. You don't want to go from being worn out and so tired from playing a seven, you know, six, seven game series when you could have wrapped it up in four or five. And that's why sweeps and wrapping it up in five are so valuable because you just give yourself that extra time to get ready compared to your opponent. Like this Dallas Suns series is going to go... Could you say that again? Oh, series back... Let's turn that off. It's such an advantage because that Dallas Suns series is going to go at least six games because it's two all now, and we'll get into what's been happening in that. But um, man, such an advantage for Golden State, and they need to take it. Okay, let's get into the Suns and Mavs, like I was just alluding to. So we've had. Game three and game four now in Dallas, and both of them pretty similar. So I'll talk about them in the same sort of in the same uh, in the same breath here. Um, yeah, really important for Dallas. You know, 
Suns won the first two games, but like they should. They had home court, so they're up 2-0. Now it goes back to Dallas for the next two games, and we've had Game 3 and Game 4. And Dallas was able to hold serve respect to them. They won Game 3 and Game 4. And everybody contributed for Dallas, and I think that's where they start. That's where they play best and at their most dangerous. I see... I still see Dallas as sort of a one-man team. Like, it's it's whether Luca is able to carry how hard he's able to carry them or how far through these playoffs he's able to carry them. But it was interesting because in Game 3 and Game 4, Luca didn't even play that well. He missed a lot of shots, and he only got around 22, 25 points in both games. But the others showed up, and... No disrespect when I call them the others. It's just they're still good players. They still could, you know, throw you know throw down with anybody, you know, get anybody in the general public to, to verse against these guys one-on-one or 3v3, um, and you're going to get thrown down. You're going to get, uh, you know, schooled. But they're just not at the level of being like a great player or a great, great player like Luka Doncic or... Devin Booker or Giannis like being held at that sort of tier. They're sort of like more tier two, tier three supporting cast players. Um, but they stepped up. You know, Finney Smith, um, Jalen Brunson, Kleber, all sort of contributing for the Mavs. And that's what you want to see. And it's it's a lot easier for them to contribute when they're at home, right? I'm going to talk about it. I'll mention it with... Philadelphia it's with every series like Philly the Celtics or whichever team right all the supporting casts are going to be better when you come back to where you feel comfortable where the fans are cheering your name they're not booing you they're not cussing you out they're not um being super loud and getting in your face and the momentum is easier um to swing in your favor and you know you see shots go down and that makes you more confident um the refs sort of are, are on your side a little bit more because of the fans. Um, you're just more familiar with the court, more familiar with, um, you know, all the pregame sort of stuff. And the night before, you know, you're not in an unfamiliar city. It all counts. It all adds up. So that's why if you're the home team, you should be taking care of business at home because it's a lot easier for everyone on your team to perform better. So... Good that the Mavs could actually do it, though, could execute. And they hit big shots. And how they've stayed in this series is by hitting threes, hitting, you know, 40 to 50% of their three-point shooting, basically turning into Golden State from the three-point line. Um, And that's tough to defend. And they're being, like I said before, where if Luka Doncic is just the one-man show, then the ball movement and player movement is really stagnant because everyone's sort of like watching Luca and saying, go on Luca, shoot Luca magic, magic, magic time, magic, Luca magic time, you know, show us some razzle dazzle, be the magician, um, go and win the game for us. Like I'm just going to stand here with my hands in my pockets and you do the work, Luca. That's not how you win games. That's not, Luca can do that, right? He can score 40, 50, but we've seen that doesn't win you the game. That's what happened in games one and two, right? Luca played insane, but we need the others 
Finney Smith, Jalen Brunson, Kleber, etc. to all stand up and go and someone else give me 20, someone else give me 30, someone else be an attacking option and spread the floor, move the basketball quick, attract defenders out of the way, um, yeah, be a distraction. So it opens up the floor more. Just talking a bit more about momentum in those last two Dallas games and having a good start, and they've done what I said. They've taken advantage when CP3 and Devin Booker are not on the floor, and even if they are, if they have a lead, need to build it. Like I've said, Suns used to be you know, undefeated going into the fourth quarter if they had the lead. Like They just don't throw away games. They're really good at staying out in front. So you have to be leading in the fourth quarter. Like that's when Devin Booker, that's when CP3 um, really timed themselves and paced themselves in the game, saving their energy to go, now it's time to explode. Now it's time to go beast mode. Uh, I'm taking over the fourth quarter. I'm dropping 20 points here. So Dallas said, nope, we're not trying to win this game in the fourth quarter. Let's go out and win this game in the first quarter. Let's win this game in the second quarter. Build a crazy big lead. And that's what's been happening. Dallas has been up, you know, 8, 10, 12 points at halftime or in the third quarter, and that's just a lot harder to run down. And you could see on the, you know, like I talk about the home advantage, you could see it on both benches as the game was happening. You know, Dallas's bench, all, you know, 10 players who are not in the game, plus, you know, the coaches, training staff, everybody, media, and the fans too, all behind them. Everybody's standing on their feet the whole game, waving towels, shouting, encouraging their teammates. And then they, the camera would pan to the Suns bench and they're all arms crossed, legs out, leaning back, whispering to each other, you know, wide eyes, sh- like no one's talking, dead silent. Um, yeah, that's what you, you need to rattle these guys. You need to rock them put them in a place that's uncomfortable for them, that's harder, that they haven't experienced before, and they're just not as good at coming back as they are being a front runner. Another interesting point from this, I think it was game three actually, was um, that was just funny to talk about, is that Luca got a technical foul. Like he had the ball and then two of the Suns defenders, I think Jamie Crowder, tried to reach in and, and foul him to stop him taking a shot and swung him to the ground, like got him by the elbow and like lassoed him down to the ground, threw him on the ground. And then Luca, the ref looked at it and was like, that's, that's a foul against you, Luca. How dare you for doing that? How dare you let this guy swing you around and throw you on the ground? And everyone watching it, the whole stadium was like, what? Uh, clearly this guy sort of like used a WWE move and just threw him down to the ground. What's up with that? Go and watch that if you haven't seen it. Type in like Luka Doncic technical foul, I think game three. Oh, mind-boggling. But um, I'm, Giannis had a good view on it too because there's been a few puzzling calls in this Bucks celtics series and he said Giannis in a press conference and I think Luka should say the same thing too that's like, a media member asked him about, oh, the fouls being called and what do you think of the referees and are they doing a good job? And Giannis just paused and looked and said, how much is it? How much is the fine if I talk bad about the referees? 
20,000? Yeah, nah, I'm not going to say anything. I, I, need, I need to buy diapers tonight. <laughs> I'll use that money for diapers <laughs> and baby food. <laughs> smart, smart move. I, lo- I love that quote. Uh, it never gets you anywhere. They're um, talking about the referees, and there's no, there's very little accountability for referees making poor poor calls. So that was one of those moments when I saw Luka Doncic being slung to the ground. I was like, "Oh, they're refereeing so bad!" And I caught myself going, "Tom, <laughs> we don't need to talk about it. <laughs> like nothing's going to change." But it's a it's a it's a good mindset from Giannis and some of these players because you don't want to get caught up into that. And it's just you can never tell these referees that they're wrong. Just last thought about this Mavs Sun series now at 2 all will be now it goes back to Phoenix Suns. So like the first two games are played at the higher seeds home, which was Suns. They won them. Then it goes to Mavs home, which is a lower seed. They won them both games. From here, game five, six, seven, it goes back and forth. Like it will be at the Suns home. Then it'll, if we need a game six, which we will, it will be at Dallas. And then if we need a game seven, it's always at the higher seed's home. It's at the Suns. So the Hunt, the Huns, the Suns don't need to win in Dallas anymore. They need to, you know, each team needs to win two games to get to four, like the best of seven. But I'm, Phoenix shot so poorly, like they were um, uncharacteristically inefficient in Dallas's home. They missed a lot of shots and were taking poor shots. And that, again, comes down to the others not stepping up and it being harder to step up away from home. Good defense by Dallas, wearing down Devin Booker and Chris Paul earlier in the game, expending a lot of their energy on defense. They couldn't step up in the fourth quarter and do this crazy comeback. Um, But we'll see if Suns can bring it back and I think they will shoot a lot better at home because now it's their turn. They've got the advantage. And what will be interesting to see is, even though the series is 2-all, Dallas has won the last two games. So, like, technically, they have their momentum going into this game. And I just would love to see them come in really aggressive and try to carry that momentum in and see where it gets them. Dallas needs to win one of these two games. So it would be easier for them to go all out in this game, try to steal game five, come back to Dallas and try to get that final win in Dallas, seal it in six, get four wins in a row, rather than, oh, you know, Suns are supposed to win in game five, we'll win in game six in Dallas and let's let's try and win game seven back at the Suns. You never, game sevens are too stressful and you can never predict them, so... Wouldn't want to put yourself in that position. Go out and handle business in game five. Get greedy. Moving on to the next matchup, back to the East now. We had 76ers versus Miami in game four and a few days ago. And game five has just finished today. But just going back to game four first, 76ers at home, they were able to even the series. You know, I think it must be, I I usually don't jinx teams that much, but now that I've started the podcast, I've, I've developed the commentator's curse or the, the commentator's jinx, um, you know, the podcasting sort of jinx. Um, yeah, 
I really thought Miami might sweep this series or get it done in five, but it just shows how much of a factor having Joel Embiid back on the floor is uh, for 76ers. And most importantly, having James Harden show us some potential. I won't say that he's back because it's not enough to just play well one game and go, oh, wow, he's back to how he was at the Houston Rockets. You know, even then, how he was at Houston was just not good enough. You know, he won the MVP, but it was similar to that Russell Westbrook MVP. It was very just stats based and, you know, MVP is very subjective, right? Like having a regular season MVP and a finals MVP doesn't really do it for me because then people like James Harden win the MVP and, you know, can never, has been a player that's never really stepped up and played consistently how he can at times, at moments in the regular season. He just shrinks into a shell of himself in the playoffs and halves his average, right? Like he might be a player that can average 25, 30 points and 10 assists and five rebounds in the regular season when he's playing at his best. But in the playoffs, when his team needs him to do that, when they need it the most, he's like, nah, guys, this isn't for me. I'll just give you 10 points and two assists. Yeah, I'm not about it. So, anyway, enough ugh, enough James Harden slander, but um, I don't know, credit to him for this game in Game 4, right? Like, he came out, didn't play well the first three quarters, and then took over the fourth quarter when they needed him when Miami was starting to have a comeback. Like, 76ers were leading that game most of the game, but then Miami started to come back. 76ers got complacent, but then Harden sort of turned back the clock and started hitting... His, you know, trademark uh, step back three, you know, dribbling between the legs, hypnotizing the defender, lulling them to sleep, and then almost traveling, taking a couple long jump steps back behind the three-point line and just hitting threes, uh, straight splash, straight buckets, no net. So it's it's entertaining to watch. My question for, for him and for other people is, do you think, can you do it consistently? Because your team needs you to, especially with Joel Embiid coming off this uh, orbital fracture and still having that lingering thumb injury, is that he is still not back to himself. You know, Embiid was more productive this game, but he still is not super confident. Like he's not posting people up. He's not, you know, he's not doing the Giannis sort of strategy, running through people or using his body very much. He's still a bit tentative with it and missing a few shots and not being the guy how he was in the regular season to give you, you know, his MVP stat line of like 30 points, 10, 12 assists and 10 rebounds, basically. Um, yeah, he's still taking a little bit more time to come back into it. So that's why you're, you're paying James Harden almost a max contract to be that guy. And thank goodness, you know, he was able to do it for one for one game or one quarter, basically, Let's see you do it. You know, my thing is it's it's easy to perform well when the crowd's chanting your name and you have a lead. It's easy to hit buckets then, right? Easy to for your shot and your number to be called. Game five, game six, or there's other times where you're away from home and people show you how good or great they are when times are tough, right? 
it's easy to perform well if you have every advantage or you have every opportunity. Show me the kid that came from like a broken home or that was homeless or had to work five jobs or like had to really struggle for something and things weren't in their favor and they were still able to overcome it. That's impressive. That's respect. That's true uh, overcoming adversity. That's true greatness. Anyone can just be put in a good situation and when times are good, keep it rolling. Keep the ship going forward. Show me how you handle the ship when you know there's 40-foot waves trying to sink the boat and the rest of the crew has, has jumped off or you've hit, you've hit the iceberg and you're, you're on Titanic and you're trying to uh, salvage what's left of it. Show me, show me how great you can be when times are tough, James Harden. It's not enough for me to see it when things are going well and, and beads back. Where was this game one and two? And we better see it in game five and six because it's almost, it's almost worse for him now that he showed that, right? Because it's like, oh, damn, the potential is still there. He can still do it. But we're going to see if it's just catching lightning in a bottle just one time or can he do it consistently? Because if he can do that consistently, they could beat the Heat. It's undef- You can't defend this Sixers team if they have Embiid playing like Giannis, taller than everybody, stronger than everybody, confident in the paint, just bullying people, as well as having someone like Steph Curry out in the three-point line that just isn't missing shots. You can't defend that, right? It's like pick your poison. But Miami's thing has just been put a wall in front of James Harden or just bet that he'll miss shots and focus on Embiid. Um, And that's worked so far. But curious to see them take it back to Miami and see if they can replicate it. Just before we get into game five that just happened today with Miami and 76ers, again, Miami's similar to game three, right? Where Philadelphia actually didn't play good defense against them. Like Miami still had a lot of opportunities and rebounded well. They just missed their shots. And similar to what I was just talking about with the Suns versus Mavs is that the Suns are really good at shooting at home, right? They shoot... 60, 70% of their two-pointers and around 50% of their threes. They went to Dallas and shot really poorly, around 20-30%. You expect them to come back home and they're going to shoot well. Same with Miami, right? Like I expect them to come back home to game five on their turf. All the others are going to contribute. All those shots, it's it's not like they took bad shots in this game four, right? They still moved the ball well had uncontested threes, had a few, um, you know, good looks, still good ball movement. The shots just didn't go down tonight. And it took an incredible superhuman effort by James Harden to rescue these 76ers. I tell you what, it's going to take even more, you know, it's going to have to be more than just James Harden that steps up in game five because I don't think Miami's going to shoot that bad in game five. So we'll see how that goes. So game five, we're moving on to that now. Happened just an hour or two ago. And guess what? 
I just was talking about how I'm a big jinx, but this one didn't jinx it. Miami shot well. But a big story in this game, and I just want to ask the question leading into it is, how would how do you respond to an injustice? How do you respond when things don't go your way and it's unfair? Or how do you respond when you get angry about something, when something's caused you to get angry in like a work setting? Does that make you want to work harder and prove people wrong? Does like negative energy, does negative things happening, you know, people being down on you or questioning you or someone gets promoted and you should have been promoted. Does that type of stuff make you work harder or does it make you withdraw into yourself? Does it make you um, not want to work harder? Does it make you do less? Does it demoralize you? Does it take away your energy? Um, That's my question because I think... And not to say, oh my gosh, like you didn't respond, like something bad happened to you and it didn't fuel you to work harder. Like that's poor from you. I don't know. I'm going to try to make that argument, but I just want to say it's very contextual and there's lots of things that can affect it. But I think that's a good lead into what's happened in game five because right before game five, you know, Joel Embiid all year was a lot of people's MVP. He was deserving of like best player or most valuable player of the year. And he didn't get the award. It was between him, Giannis, and Nikola Jokic, who won the MVP last year. And Nikola Jokic, congrats to him, won it again this year. Back-to-back MVPs. Has only been done 13 times in the history of NBA, so shout out to him. But I think that that is the reason why the 76ers lost tonight or a big reason, a big part of it because Joel Embiid was out there and he was like a different person. It was like someone else subbed in, like an average street fan subbed in their consciousness or their mind into his mind and took over his body because that was not the Joel Embiid that we know. Um, Yeah, only under 20 points, turning the ball over constantly, missing clear shots, wide open shots, um, hitting bricks, absolute bricks, not contributing on defense. Just, you could tell he just didn't want to be there. And it was, his mind was elsewhere. And I think that's a combination of, you know, the thumb injury lingering, having the mask on, the facial fracture still hurting him. But I think... Yeah, not not getting the MVP really affected him tonight. And he just wanted one of his teammates to go up to him and go and just give him a big shake and go, hey, don't don't worry about that. You're the MVP to us. We know it. But go and show everybody. Go and show everybody the mistake they made. Go and show everyone why you should have been the MVP. Show us how you respond to adversity or show us how you respond when you get angry. Not everyone has it inside them to naturally let that stuff fuel them. And some people, it does put them down and stuff. So it's, it's a natural reaction. And, you know, I don't want to pile on too much on, on him, but it was a big opportunity to show us how wrong or how wrong the rest of the world was 
for not giving him MVP. And it, it only proved in everyone else's mind, yep, we made the right choice. Nikola Jokic, MVP. Looking at Joel Embiid, this is who he is. This is not the MVP. How could you vote for this? How could we let this win? We didn't. So they missed the trick there tonight. And like I said, Miami played smart. They just built a wall in front of James Harden and, and Joel Embiid. They played more zone defense rather than like man on man. So if you're not familiar with zone defense, it's, it's not marking a player. It's marking space on the court. Like everyone has a zone basically like painted around them or a circle around them, like a bubble that's like, I'm going to stand here when they have the ball. If anyone comes into my zone, into my bubble, then I'll attack I'll attack and try to defend them. Um, I'll try to go for a steal or try to contest them. But if my if a player runs around, I'm not chasing them. I'm not playing man-to-man. I'll pick up that player running around if they come into my spot. And I think that worked well. It confused the 76ers. They hadn't done that much in this series. And it built a barrier, built a wall in front of Joel Embiid and James Harden and forced them to, you know, dared them to take threes and to hit their shots. You know, zone defense, you want people running around, creating a lot of movement, moving the ball fast to try to create confusion. And you're going to have more space and more time. And it's just on you as the 76ers to hit your shots, hit your shots, kid. Uh, they weren't able to. And, um, I don't know. I'm interested to hear what do you think about that take about the MVP not winning it, you know, not using it to fuel him to have a crazy game or just how would you respond to getting news that made you angry or frustrated? Yeah. And then now moving to the last... Uh, NBA match series that I've missed over the last couple of days that happened yesterday was Celtics versus the Bucks in game four. So Bucks had the lead in that series exactly like the Warriors going into game four, right? So Bucks were 2-1 up, then having game four in Milwaukee, big chance to make it 3-1 and being a real driving, uh, driving seat of that rest of the series, especially as the underdog or like underdog in brackets because they're the defending champions, but they are the lowest seed. So technically the underdog have to play more games away from home. Don't have Chris Middleton at the moment. And I think that really showed in this game. Um, you know, it took similar to the 76ers. It took a crazy phenomenal performance by Al Horford, uh, the big vet from, uh, Boston too. He had 30 points and eight rebounds, five assists. He he just came out of nowhere. So he's there, um, often like a bench player, but often, you know, if he's in the starting five, more of a, a role player or supporting cast. But um, this game, Milwaukee was actually leading quite a lot of it. And they were up with like 10, 12 points in, late in the third quarter. It was like 80 or maybe not 80, like 65 to 52 or something. And Giannis doesn't like runs full sprint down the court and does a crazy dunk right on top of Al Horford. And it's funny, like 
Giannis is like staring him down, having words with him, going like, you're too small or you're not good enough. Like, don't even try to guard me. And Al Horford's just looking at him going, oh, okay. Like just nodding his head like, hmm. And it was funny because after the game, I saw a, a tweet on Twitter where his wife, Al Horford's wife, um, was commenting to someone showing that video going, I've seen that look before. Damn, he like he worked the beast up inside my husband. Like, you do not want to bring the animal out. You, I've seen that look, and he just goes insane after after seeing that that um that look in his eye. So she knew what was about to happen, and he just went insane after that. He basically turned into Giannis, but for the Celtics, like dunking on everyone, pulling up mid range uh, in the post off one leg, hitting crazy jump shots and, uh, yeah, getting to his spot and just didn't miss. Um, it's, it's a, you know, great performance by the Celtics. I think it shows a little bit of my bias of who I want to win. I I wanted the Bucks to win. I want to see them go through, but, um, what more can you do if you're the Milwaukee Bucks, right? Like with the Celtics, they have a few star players. They got Jason Tatum, um, and Jalen Brown, which is their main attacking weapons. And, I had a good game plan of, you know, make someone else beat you but the star players. You know, make Alpha Horford have to get 30 points. And that's what it took. You know, Bucks only lost this game by eight points despite, you know, keeping Jason Tatum, you know, under 30, keeping Jalen Brown under 30, um, Marcus Smart having a, a poor game, um, yeah, keeping all of the other role players out of it. It, you know, it really took everything out of Al Horford to give them, um, to pull them across the line. And if he didn't, you know, he usually averages around eight to 10 points. Um, so if he doesn't get that extra 20, Bucks comfortably win this game. Um, man, it took a crazy fourth quarter as well by Boston. You know, Horford exploded, but then they, they scored 43 points and they went 16 of 19 shots. They shot 19 times in that quarter and 16 of them went in. They only missed three shots that whole quarter. Just shows you like, wow, they didn't miss. They just came in at clutch time and said, this game's ours. We're taking it. Um, That game in particular too, you can talk about Milwaukee or we can talk about, I'll talk about, that I saw that Milwaukee got a bit lazy and did the same sort of Philadelphia strategy. Oh, not Philadelphia. Uh, Luka Doncic and the Mavs sort of strategy of like, here you go, Giannis. We're just going to sit back with our hands in our pockets and we're going to be chill, stand still. Um, we're not going to move. We're not going to pass the ball. We're just going to be, we may as well take a seat in the crowd and just marvel at your excellence. Go and win us the game. And Giannis still did all he could. You know, he got a solid, you know, over 30 points, basically 20 rebounds and six, seven assists. But again, when everyone is defending him and putting bodies on him, eventually it tires him out and sometimes the shots don't go in. And it's a lot easier for the Bucks to win games. I don't understand it that... You need players being a distraction, moving around, creating space. That makes Giannis's life easier and it makes your life easier as well. Um, 
But this is where that Chris Middleton injury really affected them. They didn't have someone to close the game. You know, when Boston's doing this fight back and getting these 43 points in the last quarter, not missing any of their shots, they need Chris Middleton, who's their closer, their equivalent of, you know, he's not as good as Jason Tatum, but he's their equivalent and what they expect out of him on the Bucks side to step up in big moments, hit really clutch shots, and turn the momentum the other way around. And he's just been injured this whole playoff series, and they've really missed it. Um, so a huge, huge fight back from the Celtics, and really it means a lot for them to win this game because now it's 2 all, And differently to the other series, it goes back to the Celtics now. They're the highest seed. They have game five at their home ground. Like, it was very special and really telling of the Bucks to come out and win game one at the Celtics, right? It means we've done our job now. We don't have to win away from home anymore. We've gotten our one win. We're the lowest seed. We've gotten our one win away from home. Now let's just come back to Milwaukee and take care of business. And they didn't come back to Milwaukee and take care of business. <laughs> um, now Boston can say the same. We got our we got our road win. We're we're back to just needing to win on home turf. So, man, I if if the Bucks end up losing this series, I think they look back on this game four and go. Damn, that was a real wasted opportunity. Alrighty, that's enough basketball there. We'll move on from that and we'll go into some... Just one question today uh, from Ryan. He says, in the first one you talked about, you would talk a bit about the F1, especially having watched the Drive to Survive series. I really like that series as well. What do you think about how the start of the season's gone so far? You're very right, Ryan. I did say, like I said before, I got to uh, show that I know more than just NBA and NFL. And um, so F1, I've I've been a little bit out of touch with it, but I've seen basically that we just had the Miami Grand Prix. Um, that was a new one too. That's a new course first time ever been done before, like new track for this season. Um, who won that one? Max Verstappen won that one and quite comfortably. I think I have, haven't have followed the F1 just as closely this year. or well, I'm following it more closely this year just because I've been into Drive to Survive, but I still need to get my grips, get a handle on it more. But what I've seen is that yeah, in the last two seasons, Red Bull has really come out as the front runner now and has the best car and the best, um, yeah, most sort of aerodynamic and most powerful car, as well as their cars like suited to most tracks as well, which gives them a, a big advantage over the other sort of front runners in Ferrari and Mercedes with Lewis Hamilton. Um, and basically, we've had, I think, four or five races this year. And when Max Verstappen from Red Bull is able to start a race, you know, get through qualifying, qualifying first in pole, and can get off the tracks clean, get on the tracks cleanly, and get, you know, start the race cleanly and and finish the race, he finishes first. We've had two races 
um, the second one, I think the third or the fourth race where he crashed out and had some like car troubles and wasn't able, had to retire early, retire the car early. So missed out on a lot of points there. And Charles Leclerc and Ferrari has capitalized on that. Um, so I think Ferrari is technically at the top of the stands, I think at the moment, or maybe Verstappen in that victory in Miami has put Red Bull back, but I think it's Red Bull, then Ferrari, then McLaren. And surprisingly, like Lewis Hamilton is the seventh down in seventh at the moment. Like he's the seventh best driver this year when, you know, he's won the world championship seven times and should be the best driver. So I'm interested to see if he can claw his way back up to the top in, you know, there's a lot of races to go. So I'm intrigued to watch that more. All right. I know this is so bad of me. I know I've kept saying, I think the last episode and the one before we're going to talk about the top 10 off season free agent moves and transfers. Cause there's been so much going on. But I'm looking at the clock already. I think this one's definitely over an hour 15 already. So I don't want to make it too long. And I will have time either tomorrow or Friday to get... I think I'll just do an episode just on that and just maybe some other stuff going on. Now. And the hockey. I haven't even had a chance to talk about hockey today and how my t- how our teams have been going. So I'm sorry that I haven't got to the, the NFL season, off-season uh, biggest moves yet. And I really want to get that done because there's more sort of NFL content I want to talk about, but I really want to do this off-season stuff first. So if you're hanging on for that, sorry I've taken a long time. It will be out tomorrow or Friday, and then I'll probably do the next podcast on Sunday night. So anyway, we're going to leave it there. As always, I appreciate you for listening. Uh, Yeah, wherever you are right now, I hope you're having a great day. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, See you next time. Bye. Bye.